Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. Hey, Chad. What's up, man? Can you hear me and see me? Yeah. And uh, hey, how's it going? Good to see you this morning. Good, good. Thank you for waking up so early in India to join me. Yeah, thank you for working around the Indian time zone. I know how difficult that is, especially um, with the New York time zone. Typically, if I uh, live stream with somebody over there, it's at like two in the morning. That's actually the most convenient time usually. So thank you for, for staying up late tonight. Yeah, definitely. It's not that it's not that late here. It's only about 9.30 for me, so not so bad. Good. Cool. So Chad, um, I think I don't, I think the way we should just start, if you don't mind, is I would love to just learn a little bit more about you as a person. Uh, like what, what's your story kind of the background story. I I've been told that you have some kind of experience or background with philosophy, but you, I think became quite disillusioned with it. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry, academic a- academia, kind of academic philosophy is what I meant to say. And, um, so I would love to hear a little more, a little bit more just about your background, I guess, just intellectually, but also in terms of how and why you started making videos and, and, and that kind of story. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. And uh, thank you for that question. And, uh, you know, once again, thanks for inviting me onto the, uh, the program. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, as far as academia goes, um, that is something you know, I've been out of for like five years. I think that the last time I was actually, you know, in graduate school was 2014. So it's been a good long five years out of it. And I make videos, which I guess might seem kind of controversial about the subject. I certainly have um, some people, you know, uh, kind of shoot back with, well, you know, you're exaggerating this or you're exaggerating that negative uh, negative part of academia. But they're really the minority. I think the vast majority of people, uh, for every one person like that, there's at least 10 people who, um, you know, will, will agree with what I say that, you know, it's become a very dysfunctional system that, ironically enough, is not even any good at what it was supposed to do. I would argue at this point that academia is not even any good at doing philosophy. Um, the best work right now is coming out of places uh, very far away from academic press. The best work these days is either coming out of prison from Ted Kaczynski or coming off of uh, John Michael Clear's blog and places like that. So, um, definitely I have a, a relationship with, uh, with academia, which, um, I feel I'm able to present honestly this many years out of the system. We're living here in India in a rural area and, uh, you know, kind of just writing my books independently and making my videos. I have no um, restriction really on uh, what I can and can't say about academia. And right. I think that that's the position which um, is, is beneficial to the viewers to, to have somebody who's able to say what so many other people are merely going to think. Right. And so catch me up, though. What was your experience with academia? Well, the experience was uh, I was a graduate student back in 2014. I, okay. I guess I was technically starting a PhD program, but I didn't stay long. Okay. And where was that? Uh, where was I? Well, I uh, graduated from Colorado 
uh, first uh, University of Colorado Boulder um, from a now defunct program. They actually shut that down last year officially. So I um, completed the uh, the master's program there, and then I, uh, um, you know, I interviewed to uh, do PhD at some you know high ranking institutions and all that nonsense. And um, I think I started uh, Illinois, and um, I only stayed there very little time, and I left because I realized that. Um, it would uh, it would amount to so much debt to even try to finish for an experience that was honestly so underwhelming. Um, really, at any of the institutions I attended, it was it's graduate school is really underwhelming. I, I did a video recently about how if I were to describe grad school in one word, it would actually just be boring because most of what you do in grad school is actually just I mean it's, it's not even exciting, intellectually stimulating. Most of what you do in grad school is you sit through these graduate seminars and you um, do readings of the text that are so superficial, you know, that if you read the cover of Difference in Writing by Derrida, you know it's about difference. If you read the cover by Foucault, you know it's about power. That's about how deep you actually get into this stuff in grad school. Mm. So what were you originally going to study uh, doing for your PhD? Uh, well, I was kind of forced to go into an obscure field because in the United States, you can't really study philosophy um, in the philosophy department, it's kind of this bizarre situation where if you, if you want to study philosophy, you kind of have to go to um, something bizarre like comparative literature, which is kind of a, a, an artificial department, which is just miscellaneous, um, a little of this, a little of that. And that's about the only place you can do a little bit of, say, Deleuze, as you know, we're going to be discussing today. And um, I'll grant that they, they'll at least have Deleuze on the syllabus. Um, whereas the philosophy department won't because they'll be doing some nonsense with um, philosophy of chemistry or, you know, uh, does quantum physics prove that free will doesn't exist is some guy's research grant that a viewer notified me. He got like over a, over a million bucks to try to do this ridiculous project. So that's what you're actually doing in philosophy. And um, I felt like uh, comparative literature would be the only place to do that. And they, they kind of do it. The problem is that, honestly, they don't do it very well. And I feel that um, the amount of time you spend on irrelevant stuff in grad school, um, if you just devoted it to independent scholarship or whatever, you accomplish far more. Um, I've been more productive in the past one year than I was all the years. I, I spent like 10 years on college campuses. So I've been more productive in the past one year. So what is the main interest that defines your, your video production? Uh, the main interest is uh, actually peak oil. And um, I actually took about three and a half years break from philosophy. I, I didn't know to open a philosophy book from like 2015 until I brought back the channel about a year ago. And I actually gave away a lot of my old books and gave away Deleuze, gave away Freud, gave away Habermas, all of that. Because um, I, I thought it was done with philosophy. And I said I, I read heavily in peak oil. So I read um, John Michael Greer, James Howard Kunstler, Dmitry Orlov, um, Michael Rupert, um, you know, anybody else I'm forgetting in that genre, uh, you know, sorry, but, um, you know, the, the main peak oil writers. And um, I noticed that peak oil is a philosophy problem. I noticed that in all the cases, even in a kind of obscure field where there are no strict protocols dictating terminology, especially, um, they all kind of put the same problem in their own words. And this is something I uh, treat in very depth in my book, uh, Being in Oil, which should be released like maybe tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. I'm like just about done with a 500 page book um, on the topic, but uh, they all, they all, 
they'll try to put it in their, their own words. So um, Michael Rupert will put it in material cause terms. They'll say, well, you know, um, every product in your house is made of oil in one form or another. Plastic bottles are, remote controlling your TV, everything. And, um, and in fact, if you throw this book in the trash can, that's made of oil too. Um, and then some people like John Michael Greer will maybe emphasize not so much the material cause part of it as the formal cause. And they'll say things like, well, even if we um, have a perfect understanding of, say, the, uh, the, the chemistry of what petroleum is, as many of these um, you know, engineers do, they'll still be blind to the formal distortion which oil has over their own thinking. And early John Michael Greer, that's obviously mythology. He has this big sense in, in say, 2006, 2007, that you can't even begin to address peak oil if you haven't noticed that your own mythology basically is the formal essence of, of oil mapped into cognition. So for the early career, you're thinking, if you're thinking about progress, whether you're conservative, liberal, uh, communist, capitalist, doesn't make any difference. They're all basically just thinking the form of oil in their expectation that progress, um, explosive growth, return on investment, that's going to be vastly bigger than um, what they invested. That's just oil. Oil is 200 units of energy for every one unit of energy that you invest. That simply is oil, whether you're explicitly thinking it or not. Hmm. And that became kind of the inspiration to write um, what had to be a big book. Now, the memology is kind of a short, uh, ironically enough, academic presentation I did here in India, but it really needed a, a, a good 500-something page book to unpack exactly how a responsible treatment of philosophy in light with people like Aristotle and people like Husserl and people like Heidegger and um, even modern figures like Jordan Peterson and, uh, and Zizek, all of them, I think really um, you can do a responsible treatment of peak oil and philosophy. And that's what I try to do uh, both in my book and on the channel. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. So were you into these ideas at all when you were in grad school or this was all kind of post-grad, uh, post-graduate school uh, discoveries or ideas that you had? Well, peak oil was always there in the background. Um, it was something I, I largely tried to repress when I was in grad school. You know, I, I bought into the, the, the nonsense that, well, you know, since Netflix replaced Blockbuster, that means that technology, technological progress is still happening. And uh, I used to do videos on the original channel back in like 2012, 2013, saying that, you know, the, uh, the brick and mortar university is going to go the way of Blockbuster. The next thing is going to be some, you know, uh, what's the word, deterritorialized, like, rhizomatic internet uh, form for academic thought, which is going to be uh, globally connected and there's going to be no tuition restrictions or location. I did videos like that back in 2012, 2013. Um, largely as a way to silence the voice of people, which was there in my head since like 2010. And it was never really successful. And um, I think that all of that repression just led to kind of an explosion after I got out of academia, where I was finally able to address what had been in the background all those years. Yeah. Well, I hear you on that. I don't know if you know anything about my story and I won't talk about myself much here, but just to give you some context, I, uh, I was a professor and I recently left academia mostly to just do the internet full time because it was increased. It's just increasingly hard to have like a, what, what, what my vision of an intellectual life looks like anyway, I won't speak for others, but for what my vision of an intellectual life looks like, it's just, it's increasingly impossible to do it as a, career professional kind of bourgeois academic was my kind of ultimate sense. And uh, uh, yeah, basically the internet is just in basically in almost every single dimension 
of what it means to constitute an intellectual life. The internet has has several advantages and and very few of the disadvantages. So I'm I'm very you know uh, everything you're saying about the internet and academia resonates with me very you know uh, obviously. Yeah, and we're actually going back to the norm because the first um, professor, excuse me, the first philosopher who was a professor in the modern sense of the word was actually Immanuel Kant. So that's actually the anomaly. Um, going back to figures like Descartes, who was a musketeer, who wrote the, the meditations in retirement. Um, Spinoza was a, was a silversmith. Um, and, uh, John Locke was a physician. It's actually been the norm to do philosophy um, and that, outside the university. And that was not, by the way, because there were no universities. There were obviously universities at that time. They were just places where it would have been impossible. You had your established um, Roman Catholic universities doing uh, scholastic philosophy, you're established Protestant universities, you're established Islamic universities. So it's not that these guys didn't have universities. They just knew that the kind of philosophy they wanted to do um, mm. would be impossible. And I think we've actually just gone back to now what has been the historical norm for many centuries anyway. So, yeah, no, definitely. I think that makes a lot of sense. I was just going to ask you, I'm curious, why did, why did you cancel your first YouTube channel? Uh, well, the first YouTube channel, I think, um, was was different from the present one in that that was not an anti-academic channel. I actually started it um, the day that I got the acceptance letter to uh, attend grad school um, as, a, as a way to sort of uh, facilitate my uh, journey through grad school. I would uh, use it to post my own sort of study guides and also to practice with, uh, with lecturing because I... Um, knew that I was going to have to teach when I was in grad school, and I was um, at the beginning. I was a little bit anxious about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, my roommate at the time, told me, "Well, just get on YouTube and um, practice speaking about um, Heidegger and people like that on YouTube." And I, I didn't expect anybody to watch, to be honest with you. Um, and I certainly didn't expect uh, that channel to become the one that I would be be known by. Um, I think I, I, I heard you mention before the. Um, the, uh, the stream star while I was still finishing breakfast that uh, you were curious about Chad African and that was never supposed to be public. I was, um, <laughs> I was always, um, I was, uh, always, uh, uh, I, um, hoping to, uh, go public with a name other than that, but it was just happenstance that, um, one of my channels, um, that, uh, was actually not my name because I'm actually not Chad happened to be the one that accidentally, um, got out there. Wait, so you're not Chad. No, I'm not Chad. Um, I actually am. Um, um, I actually started the channel Chad African in reference to the nation because at, at that time of my life, I was interested in uh, subsistence agricultural nations, and Chad Africa is one of them. Okay. So I um, needed a, a YouTube name just to uh, put together playlists for songs while I was, uh, you know, uh, working on stuff. You know, I was doing yeah. some uh, some gardening and things like that. I just wanted some background music to play and. Uh, I needed a, a, a name for the YouTube channel. So I just uh, said chat Africa and it was taken. So I just added an N and that, <laughs> okay. was some, that was something that later became this other thing. Because when I started doing the videos, I would get messages as I still do from people saying, you know, Hey Chad, do you think you can help me with uh, reading my uh, 50 page uh, thesis before it's uh, going to uh, the, the uh, advisor? And uh, it just became my name. And like Chad Haig, as you see on the Amazon, it's not my legal name, actually, but uh, that is who I've become. Oh, that's funny, man. That's that's a really good story. Yeah, I mean, I like it. It's very mysterious. Like, I had no idea. I had no idea w- what the, what the African meant or where it came from. And but it didn't. The fact that I didn't understand it didn't 
hurt you. Didn't hurt your image in my mind at all. I just made, I was like, huh, interesting. So thanks for clarifying. Thanks for clarifying. And yeah, it's kind of like um, Jethro Tull. Uh, you know, the 70s um, folk rock band Jethro Tull. Um, the story is that every week they would play at the club with a different name. And the one week they happened to get signed to a record deal, they just happened to be called Jethro Tull, which they stole from a guy in the like 16th century. And Ian Anderson said years later that he kind of regretted that of all the names that they had, that was the one that got out there. And I feel kind of the same way with Chad African. But I mean, when I brought back the channel a year ago, I was kind of um, stuck with it again because I kind of wanted to connect with the old viewers. And the only way to do that is to be Chad African once again. That's funny, man. That's cool. So now you're known as Chad Hogg, even though you're not even Chad at all. <laughs> um, that's that, So, okay. So that gives me some, some context. So I don't think you answered my question though, or did I miss it about why did you close down the YouTube channel originally? Oh yeah. Sorry about that. Um, okay. I closed it down because I felt that at that time, peak oil and philosophy were two different things. So I felt at that time that you know, philosophy is uh, is done because that's just a part of the corrupt academic industry where people don't believe their own nonsense. They just publish stuff so they can move up within their career to a higher salary, a more prestigious university. And what I found when I was in grad school is most of these people do not believe their own stuff. Honestly, it's like being a pastor. If you're a pastor who doesn't freaking believe the Bible and you're just doing it for the money, that's what it's like. They don't actually believe in um, whatever they're citing today, that 30 years ago, they would have been citing something different. So somebody who's um, citing a post-colonial theory today, because the stock value looks like it's going up, mm. that person would have been citing uh, deconstruction in the late 80s. They would have been mm -hmm. citing um, something else in the, if it was the 60s. They, mm -hmm. It's just a job for them. And I, that was the motivation I had to, um, to, uh, to be done with it because I said, well, they don't believe this nonsense themselves. I mean, it's just a waste of time to try to read this stuff. Um, so I, instead, I, I said philosophy because that was something that seemed serious because like, you know, John Michael Greer and Michael Rupert before he died, unfortunately, they weren't writing about people to make a lot of money and something they didn't believe in. Um, no, there was actually a life and death serious matter for them. And um, it was, it still is for me as well. But I realized over time that the philosophy part of it um, can also be done with that level of responsibility. You just pretty much have to do it now outside the academy. Right. Well put. I, I have a lot of sympathy for that perspective. Now, do you, could you just give us a quick rundown of what is your take on peak oil empirically? Are you in the camp of people who think uh, it's basically uh, a fait accompli and sometime in the next hundred years, there's going to be a significant population decline in one way or another, because we're just not going to be able to uh, sustain this type of en energy consumption? Or what's your take empirically? Well, empirically, we already know that people happened in 2005. Okay, so um, when I when I talk about people, it's not something that, you know, might happen someday. It's no, it's already nearly 15 years. Okay, but how, how catastrophic do you think the consequences will be? And how soon do you think? It's going to vary by nation. So uh, I live in India now, in a rural area. It's not going to be as bad here, okay? Because um, we've already, uh, we haven't deviated as much from free fossil fuel ways of doing things functionally here. In the United States, it's going to be extreme. I think that the worst places for peak oil are going to be United States and um, the, the Gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf, um, you know, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, um, United Arab Emirates, those are, those are going to be the worst places for, for peak oil, and for different reasons. In, um, 
in uh, Saudi Arabia, they um, get their water from burning fossil fuels to convert um, ocean water into um, into drinking water. And actually, the water in UAE is so bad because many Indians, I think millions, live there. So they you know ha- have these stories that you can't even um, wash your dishes with uh, tap water. That's how polluted it is from the oil industry. But they get around it these days by just burning vast amounts of fossil fuels. And I've been to Dubai. It looks like a, a, a very, very luxurious oasis in the middle of the desert. And it's very, um, it's a very nice city, obviously, but enormous amounts of fossil fuels went into that. And it's just unsustainable, unfortunately. So um, the Gulf is probably going to be a little worse even than the United States. And you will see millions of refugees leaving Saudi Arabia and places like that. I don't know where they'll go, maybe north to to Europe or something, but um, you're going to see that. But the United States is going to have enormous promises on its own. And, um, we have our own Saudi Arabia, basically, which is the Southwest. So you're going to see millions of people leave Arizona and Las Vegas and Southern California and New Mexico. And I don't know where they're going to go because you're going to have a nation where even if loss of water is not the problem per se, as it is for Phoenix, Arizona or Las Vegas, um, the whole country is at this point um, deviated so far from functional ways of not burning fossil fuels that the slightest dip could lead to something of a 90% um, population decline. And that's coming from the Pentagon, by the way, where they did a war room. If they um, lost the electric grid for one year, 90% of people would die off because there would be no way to um, harvest, process, and um, store food. So it's a strange situation now where um, in the 18th century, you didn't have mass starvation from not having electricity because we had ways of processing food, etc., without it. But it's to the point now where the Pentagon themselves say that that would mean 90% population decline in the United States. Interesting. And are you, I guess, quite pessimistic about the possibility of some sort of alternative technological discoveries that would represent a new kind of energy paradigm beyond oil, but that would sustain current levels of development? You say no way? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that kind of need to be unpacked in, in that assumption which, you know, people make about things like wind, solar, algae, uh, is the fact that um, a lot of those are not independent sources. They're actually just oil in disguise. So solar panels are not an energy source. Solar panels are literally just a way of transferring and storing uh, fossil fuel energy. The reason for that is you cannot produce solar panels with solar panels. So if you have a solar panel that was produced by fossil fuels, um, it'll yield about as much solar energy in its lifetime as you invested to build it. And at mm-hmm. that point, it needs to be maintenance, repaired, or rebuilt, and that can only occur with fossil fuels. So there's no energy source there. It's just a way of moving around fossil fuels. So if you remove the fossil fuels, the kind of energy sources you're left with, which I'll admit alternative energy exists in the sense that you can have Um, the kind of alternative energy that I use right here, which is um, I have a water tank on the roof from the well on this piece of land, which if the sun is shining pretty, pretty hot, um, I can have a hot shower because the solar energy is obviously still there and you could still do something with it like heat a shower. But that's only um, when it's available. So you can't just flip a switch and it's there at any time, like natural gas. It's only when it's available. And it's only within the constraints that it allows as a diffuse energy source. So in the, in the future, we'll be able to do things like um, 
uh, heat water for showers like that. We'll be able to use windmills the way they did in the days of Cervantes and Don Quixote to grind grain. We'll have horses to plow fields. And obviously, we'll have human beings to do manual labor. But um, I would argue that um, anytime somebody talks about energy sources in terms other than that, it's really a euphemism for fossil fuels. If somebody gives you this um, fantasy, quite frankly, that algae is going to power a 7 billion person suburb and everybody in the future is going to be elevated to the upper middle class and drive an algae powered car two hours every day from the suburbs to the city center and work like a, a corporate career. It's, they're really talking about fossil fuels. And the philosophical problem is if they're really talking about something else, when they think that they're talking about something more shallow, how can you create something of a hierarchy um, to explain that? And, and you know, my first book, it, there is a memological layer in which um, different energy sources have a different shape. Fossil fuels have a sort of geometrical distortion of consciousness to the model of an ascending, uh, an ascending ray, basically, a line that goes up like this. So if anybody's talking about progress, immediately you know that memologically speaking, it's, it's just fossil fuels. And obviously, there really are fossil fuels as a type of somatic body behind that. Um, if it's not, then they're even more delusional. Um, but uh, that's only one of, of like four sources. If, if somebody's talking instead about cyclical processes and repeating, uh, repeating, um, uh, repeating seasonal uh, changes from reaping to, to uh, reaping and sowing and harvesting and, and, and storing over winter, they're they're um, really talking about uh, the agrarian. Um, concept of, of fields of grain and um, their thought, even if they're not explicitly talking about barley and wheat, they really are thinking that because at some level, phenomenologically, they're really aware of it. So the type of intentionality that you have in who's of, no, you're really aware of something. Okay. If it's, if, if it has, a, if it's embodied, if it really is a body there, otherwise you just have hallucination. I think that's relevant to the discussion on fossil fuels because the way that we talk about fossil fuels now, it makes sense because phenomenologically there is still the body there, which we're aware of. And that's what makes the most preposterous things sound logical because we have this intentional sense that, you know, what we're talking about really exists. But in the near future, that's going to be not the case. And when, when the body is no longer there, everything we talk about today is going to devolve into falsity. Even all of the, the sprawling systems we have today, uh, modern economics is just a euphemism for fossil fuels. Um, computer stuff like the Google algorithm, that's just a euphemism for fossil fuels. All of these systems of thought we have also are just reiterations of not only the memological basis of the, uh, the geometrical bias of, of an ascending arrow, but it's also just a reiteration of the body itself. And the systems have no validity if that underlying body doesn't exist. Okay. So your view is that energy sources or let's call them energy paradigms of a particular society affect the, the shape of philosophy, the shape or the image of thought that takes place. Um, they affect it insofar as the shape of thought is them. It's not necessarily a dualism. It's not Kant or, uh, or fiction in which I'm positing a thing in itself. And then there's this appearance which is outside of it. It's rather that, phenomenologically speaking, if you're talking about the Google algorithm, the, uh, the, the, the fossil fuels aren't outside of it. Okay? I'd say you're, yeah. really somewhere at the deepest level of that, of that discourse. The fossil fuels are already in the intuition. So 
Got if it. you um, if you are viewing the world phenomenologically within the era of fossil fuels, the fossil fuels aren't somewhere on the outside. They're just the substance of that worldview. And why do you call it a transcendental memeology? Assuming oh, trans- this is what you mean by memeology in a nutshell, right? Sure. Yeah, it's transcendental in the Husserlian sense more than the Kantian sense. So obviously, in Kant, transcendental is more like something that mysteriously occurs deep within interiority of subjectivity, and you kind of got to restore it. So for Kant, you have this transcendental process of, say, um, ordering in space and time. You should only actually see it. You have to restore it from like a footprint left on the finished product, which you get in experience. You have um, the categories like substance and cause and effect. Those are too abstract to actually deduce from experience. You have to deduce them on logical grounds from sound forms of reasoning. So for Kant, transcendental, it's like, it's obviously an irreducible part of consciousness, but you don't actually see it directly. You have to reconstruct it secondarily. But with whose role, you lose the dualism with the thing in itself. And for whose role instead, the transcendental is what's in consciousness purified of bias. So for Husserlian phenomenology, the transcendental simply is what's given in intuition if you drop the natural attitude, which obfuscates what's given according to a type of metaphysical bias which you unwittingly bring to um, the contents, which actually are exactly as they manifest themselves. Right. So that's basically what you were just saying before about how it's not that a philosophy reflects an image of thought that reflects the energy paradigm, but it actually, you know, in in some sense directly is it Um, is that that's basically what you're saying before. Yeah. It's basically going back to ancient Greek philosophy um, in the sense that uh, for Aristotle, if you're talking about one of the higher order categories, um, you're talking about substance. So I mean, if you're talking about quality, quantity, relation, um, uh, location, um, uh, you know, the other categories that Aristotle had, um, it's not that you're not talking about substance. It's that you are talking about substance, but maybe transcendentally speaking, you're operating within a sort of categorical register in which the standard of meaning it's, it's no longer substance per se. It's one of these higher order categories. So now you still have the substance of, um, say, this piece of, piece of clay. Okay. So we could talk about, like, from a higher order category, um, you know, it's location. Okay. It's not that we don't have the substance. It's still there. It's just that, transcendentally speaking, um, the, the standard of meaning is no longer substance per se. It's one of these other ones. I think that's what happens with memology. Um, with memology, you still have the fossil fuels as substance there. It's just that the transcendental register of meaning is no longer denominated by the, uh, the, the basic unit of meaning that you would have of substance. Now the basic unit of meaning is one meme, like uh, one geometrical shape, whether that's the, uh, the, the, the ascending ray, the agrarian circle of grain for the hunter-gatherers. It's more like a level plane of reciprocity. You, we see even in like um, Native American and Australian Aborigine um, folk tales, you have this reciprocity between humans and animals in which animals are personified. They are interacted with you, um, make offerings to them in, in order to try to induce them to um, enter into a beneficial relationship with you. And that's really lost with the, the subsequent ones in uh, the agrarian circle. They become livestock. Uh, which are, you know, like a, a, a domesticated source of wealth. And then, of course, in our day, we just put like 30,000 hogs in a factory 
and we just slaughter them in mass. And it's a very, it's a totally disgusting and unsanitary way of uh, processing food, which obviously 90% of the E. coli directly is the result of um, the way that we factory farm cattle. Um, but you can see, like, in a certain sense, those are different shapes, but the, the underlying substance is different in each case as well. Yeah, yeah, that's very fascinating. Well put. Now, I'm kind of curious, Chad, like how, because how, I was looking through your websites and stuff like that, and um, you you seem to be quite prolific with making videos and writing books. I'm I'm curious though, like how do you get your books out to people? Like, what is your, um, you know, I, a lot of people are interested in this because a lot of people who follow my stuff are very interested in kind of independent intellectuals and and also kind of how to do that kind of stuff. So, and I'm also kind of doing these things myself. So sometimes I like to ask people just like how their systems work and, and uh, a, a little bit of insight into that. Like when you, when you wrote this last book, the transcendental memeology, um, do you do any type of marketing or any type of stuff like that at all? Or what's your, what's your system like? Well, um, marketing at this point is just through the YouTube channel, but I think that um, that's precisely who would uh, be interested in such a topic anyways, uh, right. that a handful of people around the world Um yeah, I don't mean handsome in the sense that it's it's just a couple. I mean, like across the world, a number of people are interested in people and philosophy. And the way to find them is, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, just to go to YouTube. Um, and it's 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 working pretty pretty well as far as the experience goes. In the sense of, um, it's it's been a great experience connecting with people and uh, doing live live stream dialogues like this one and. Um, and, uh, and uh, a lot more productive conversation than anything that I had in grad school. Another myth about grad school is you're going to have all these intellectual discussions. And <laughs> the fact of matters, no, I mean, I can't even count. I don't think I had one really interesting discussion the whole time that I was in grad school. Wow. wow. Yeah. Okay. So, and was this your first book, The Transcendental Memology? Uh, yeah, that's right. I, uh, I didn't write uh, in, in grad school because... Uh, um, well, obviously, I was writing, but it was it was a, a lot of these trivial like academic projects, which um, you know I, I really feel glad that they never saw the light of day. Because I'll admit that you know that sort of thing really is garbage, which uh, isn't meant to be read. It's meant to be, you know, uh, it's meant to be uh, pushed down the assembly line of academic productions to try to get you somewhere else within the university. Um, so this is, this is the beginning, but, uh, have a lot more, more plan. You know, I'm, I'm publishing being in oil, a uh, good 500 something page book, uh, maybe tomorrow. It's uh, really the final phases of that book. And I'm also working on a couple other books. Uh, I'm going to do the philosophy of Ted Kaczynski, um, the philosophy of John Michael Greer and, uh, the philosophy of uh, Jordan Peterson within the next year. Yeah, that's awesome. That's fascinating, man. That's really, that's really cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Doing all this stuff on the internet because, I'm sure you 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 can relate to this. It's like you can do everything so much faster. It's crazy how much more productive you can be when you just stop asking permission from anyone and you stop, you know, doing any of that. Like you were saying, just writing this or writing that because you need to promote this or advance yourself in this way. When you just sit down to basically just write what you want and think what you want, it's amazing how much more you can get done. Is that have you found that? Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, let's let's just think honestly about how many years you would have to uh, invest before you could write a book like the one that I'm writing right now. So if you were yeah. an academia, you'd have to, yeah, you'd have to go to undergrad for four years, a master's degree for two years, then you'd have to go to a PhD for nine years, and then you'd have to do a postdoc and um, go to these temporary appointments to try to build up 
Then you try to spend six years getting tenure, you get rejected, go to another university, spend six years trying to get tenure. You'd be writing about ridiculous stuff you don't even care about just to try to get a publication out. So maybe like at the age of 55, you'd be able to try to write a book like this. But um, right. honestly, I don't even, I wouldn't even recommend if anyone's watching right now trying that because um, the, the only thing sustaining universities right now in the United States is the student loan bubble. And that's starting to show signs of, of, of letting out air. So um, if you don't have trillions of dollars of student loans flooding into the universities, you're, you don't have these departments. Just You simply do not have academic philosophy or comparative literature or sociology or any of these departments, which the administrators, when, um, when push comes to shove after the student loans are gone, they're just going to look at these departments and say, out, you know, you guys um, do not... You guys are not worth uh, keeping on the on the budget because you're too expensive to have uh, professors who are not directly making enough money for the university and research dollars. So you guys are done. And you are not going to be able to convince those people, by the way, many of whom are not intellectual people. Most of the universities are run by people with 20 years of, of corporate experience as uh, as cutthroat executives making profit. Um, and they're not the kind of people who you'll be able to go to them as a philosophy professor and say, oh, no, no, don't get rid of us. We're not bullshit because we've been doing the philosophy of science this whole time. They're not the kind of people who will listen to an argument like that. Fascinating. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I appreciate your perspective as a grad student. I mean, it's it's not even better, really, as an uh, when you're an academic. Like, if you're lucky enough to jump through all those hoops and get like, I was basically a tenured academic, the British version of tenure, which is a bit weaker, but so, I, I mean, even, even after you put in all the legwork and you pay your dues with all the bullshit that you were talking about, even when it's supposed to be good and you've arrived, it's still, it takes, you have to jump through so many hoops. Just if you want to write a book, I mean, you have to workshop it a bunch of times. You have to get grants. If you want to go that route, you need to, uh, you need to basically win the social favor of, like dozens of people. Uh, and, and then you also have to write the damn thing, but in kind of communication with uh, a bunch of other people's opinions, uh, basically. And so it's like the weight, the waiting and, and the middlemen, it's like, it, it's all so, um, it's so obviously over the top in terms of its uh, inefficiency and, and just kind of stupidity that, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, that's why I want people to like, look at people like you who are kind of just like, fuck it. I'm going to write like, I'm going to write a 500 page book right now just because I feel like it and because I want to, and because I can, and I think it's important to to think and to express what I'm, what I'm thinking and trying to express. Um, yeah. I, I just love cases like you of people who just get after it and can show how much more you can do if you just don't bother going through the system. Right. And, and I mean, thank you for sharing that. You know, that's something which a lot of people I'm, I think maybe wouldn't, um, wouldn't understand the extent to which that's actually what, you know, like the fantasy of being like a, like a professional intellectual, like in reality, the worst part about what you just mentioned is the fact that even if you did publish that book, um, it could be 30 years before anybody, quite frankly, even reads it all the way through to, to write a review. Because I mean, it's just speaking about some of the professors I had when I was in grad school, I looked up their publications from the 1980s, which not one person had cared enough to leave a review for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there are maybe for some cases, some reasons to still go down that route for certain types of people. It maybe is like, I, I can understand why it might still be attractive, but I think for overwhelming numbers of people who kind of think they want to do something like academia because they want to write books or they want to have some kind of intellectual 
life. I mean, I just think for the overall majority of people who have that kind of aspiration, run from academia as fast as you can, I think is my general uh, impression. Yeah, and you're not actually missing anything because it's like I mentioned, they're not even any good. The the most bizarre thing I found about academia is with all of the ridiculous hoops you have to jump through and all of the oversight and regulation yeah. and all of the time-consuming nonsense, they're still not producing anything good. It's ridiculous how much time and money could be invested for such poor results. And I've mentioned you know, my own personal crunching the numbers is that something like a million bucks is wasted for every dissertation that's produced in the United States if you factor in all of the tuition waivers and um, and uh, years of, of spending 10 years on uh, research assistantship and all the people who drop out, factor them into the final product and all mm. of this other stuff. It's like a million bucks to produce one dissertation. And if you if, if you haven't actually read one of these, you'd be amazed at how abysmal the standard writing is because I actually exposed some of this stuff on my channel and the viewers are just amazed that something that poor in quality could be the result of nine years and a million bucks. Yeah, it's it's quite a, it's quite an interesting system. I think what I think when when the real truth of academia really get I I don't want to use corny kind of like conspiratorial language, but when the the real truth gets exposed and like lots of people actually understand what what's going on in the academic system, I think I think people will be horrified by it. Like people will look back on academia kind of like right now people look back on you know like the the derivative scandals of like before 2008 or something like that. You know, I think it's like, it's like actually really kind of dirty and, and dark and, and, and pretty deep actually how, how kind of nasty. And I almost want to say evil is, is the system just because, you know, it's probably not much worse than like any kind of evil, like corporate, uh, you know, sector. The, but the unique thing about academia is that it, it really presents itself as doing something different and better. And, and that's where it's, it's peculiar um, kind of devilishness, I think, uh, comes from, if you ask me. But I think like there's a lot of skepticism about academia and conservatives especially are kind of critical of academia. But I think my sense is that the public really doesn't know the half of it. And if they, if they learn, it's going to be like quite a kind of uh, massive scandal, I think. <laughs> well, I agree with that. And I think that one thing that works definitely to the advantage of what you suspect is going to happen is the student loan scandal because you've got a demographic time bomb there. There's what 50 approaching 50 million people in the United States with student loans. And by the time this finally runs its course with, with the millions of people who go to college every year, um, it's going to be probably like 55, 60 million people in the United States who are getting screwed by their student loans. And I'm actually a student loan refugee. I'm living in India because I not, that's not the only reason, obviously, but I'm here as somebody who's fled the country um, from the uh, from the student loan collectors um, because okay. um, I mean you want to talk about a scam. Student loans make um, Enron look ethical. <laughs> so you went there and you went to India in part to not pay student loans in America. Is that right? Uh, I was certainly a, a nice benefit. Now I'm here for other reasons. You know, my wife is Indian um, okay. and. Um, we, we, we enjoy living here. I mean, I, I definitely, don't get me wrong, I, I, I love being here. I'm not here just fleeing the country. But uh, yeah, yeah. that was definitely something which um, I realized if I was going to be here that even giving $1 to these people would be, would, be, uh, would be out of my, I'd be out of my mind to do it because there's no benefit that comes from it. Um, other older forms of trade had to actually produce something of value in exchange. So you go down to the market, you spend like uh, 
five dollars on vegetables, right? You're getting the student loan people realize that they could take your money and give you nothing in return because I paid my student loans for five years. And I'll tell you, um, there's not a fucking thing that you get in exchange for paying your student loans. The only thing that that does is put off how, how bad they can raise your rates and things like that. Oh yeah. Well, I definitely agree that there's absolutely no ethical compunctions about not paying your student loans. If you you're in a, a situation where it's not going to negatively affect you. I completely, I completely agree with that. I mean, yeah, we don't need to go down a rabbit hole about capitalism and ethics or whatever, but I'm, I'm kind of personally of the opinion that, um, you know, in contemporary society, what, what, what businesses do to you is basically whatever they can get away with, uh, that, you know, uh, matches their calculations of what's in their interest to do. And so the law is just one of the variables that they factor in and the consequences of the law is one variable that they factor in. But uh, they have no respect for the law itself, so I'm certainly not going to have respect for the law itself, and I don't think anyone else should either. So uh, I'm, I, I have no, I have no qualms or objections on that point. Right, and you're not actually paying back anything because they screw you twice because the money just goes to pay ridiculous tuition rates, so it's just shuffled from one corrupt institution to another. They just they uh, they they give the money to the university. And uh, most of the classes you get are going to be fluff. You're not going to learn anything in, in, as a result of this. And then they shuffle the money back to the student loan company. And then they shuffle it to the guarantor. And then you consolidate the moves to another. So you get screwed like four or five times with having to pay back for something. You didn't even get anything the first time around. Right. Well, yeah, I think a small number of people can get something out of it. You know, I think there is a way to go to university and make the most of it. And I mean, I think for a small number of people taking out those loans wasn't necessarily a mistake, but yeah, your larger point is well, is well taken. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, yeah. And if I will just say uh, real quick, you mentioned that, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily different from what other businesses would be doing if they could. I think that's right. I think that um, the difference, however, is that uh, as uh, Ted Kaczynski mentions in his recent book, written from prison, uh, anti-tech revolution. Um, there's a natural tendency of self-propagating systems, as he calls them, like nations and corporations and student loan companies and universities to try to um, out, outdo each other in natural competition to the extent that they can by maximizing um, the scope of their, um, of their uh, domination. The difference is that today, that limit has intrinsically been raised to uh, previously unthinkable levels, he says, by technology. So these days, um, you have the same tendency towards expansion and domination that the Roman Empire had, but they were physically limited to just the area like around the Mediterranean. Um, it's not that they didn't want to go further, they just weren't able to because they didn't have modern technology, or in, in, in my terms, they didn't have fossil fuels. But today, the same sort of base human nature is allowed a far higher ceiling of destruction because of, of technology and because of fossil fuels. And I would say that that's the, the case in the short term, but in the long term, it definitely won't be. And these institutions like um, the student loan people and, uh, you know, all of the other sort of huge uh, corrupt institutions that are screwing millions of people, when the fossil fuels start to run out, um, they're actually just going to collapse because there's no way to conduct those types of operations with without the kind of energy sources, which... You might think that somebody like uh, like Sally May or even somebody like Google, you might think that they're extremely powerful, 
But the power that they have is literally just fossil fuels. Like phenomenologically speaking, the power that you're aware of is just fossil fuels. They're just a tiny parasite on something much bigger than themselves. Hmm. Hmm. And so how is your, how did your book, your recent book, the one that's coming out soon, maybe tomorrow being an oil, is that right? How is that different? Oh, did I get it right? What is it called? Uh, being an oil. Being an oil. Mm-hmm. Right. Like being in time, but oil instead yeah. of time. Okay. Just making sure I got that right. Right. So how, how does being and oil, how is it different than the transcendental memology or, or, or what did you, what did you learn in the, in the, in the time between those two? Um, well, it's, it's kind of more like a subset superset relation in which um, memology is a, a part of okay. this bigger system. And since I did that as a uh, conference presentation, ironically enough, I was invited um, to do a uh, presentation right here. In a, there's a college near the village where I live in, in India. Um, so I accepted and um, they really had no restriction on the topic. So I just decided to do it on uh, something I was writing on anyway. But I realized that I, uh, a conference presentation was much too small to talk about what would need about a 500 page book. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a subset of the speaker thing in the sense that, you know, for uh, being an oil, it's, it's not just one, maybe transcendental register, meaning it's all five. So for me, the, the five registers of meaning um, are at the deepest level, you have the, the somatic level, which is from the ancient Greek word for, for a body. So to the extent that I can, I, I try to do the Heidegger thing of inventing new term- terminology. So I don't want to necessarily use loaded terms. I don't want to call that like the physical or the real or the material level, um, the concrete level. Those terms are too loaded. So um, I call that the somatic level from the ancient Greek term soma for a body in the sense that like if you're talking about um, fossil fuels at the somatic level, the criteria is whether there's a physical body that's really existing there, which you're aware of. If there is, then the higher borders which are founded on it makes sense. And in a certain sense, they're true. Yeah, because that's also a standard of truth. Um, but if it's gone, then all of that's just false. Yeah. So uh, higher than that's the memological layer, and they move up progressively from more abstract to less abstract and more um, natural to intuition to more unnatural. So the most unnatural, as requires greatest deviation, is the somatic layer, most people never never reach it. And Marx, for example, is a, is a materialist, but he's not able to penetrate to the somatic layer. He uh, doesn't make it quite that far. Most people don't. Um, and uh, so there's the memological layer, which is more like a geometrical metaphor of the same thing. It's not that there's, it, there's a different substance. It just is the same substance through the transcendental register of a shape. So the minimal unit of meaning at this point is, you know, a shape like a circle, a level plane, a, uh, an ascending ray. And then the layer above that is the layer of counter sense objects and sense objects. A sense that we normally think of objects as being abstractions from systems. If you take the Marxist view, well, you have a, a system of, uh, of uh, economic relations and a commodity is just like an abstraction from a set of a systematic set of relations, right? Um, but actually, I would say that systems are founded on sense objects because a sense object can actually um, communicate in one uh, intuitive glance, what a system requires thousands, millions, billions of, of symbols to communicate less clearly. So my favorite example is you have a countersense object like a machine, uh, which burns fossil fuels to promise you that you're going to get progress from burning the remaining fuels that you have. It's, it's countersense. It doesn't actually make any sense, but it reiterates the, the fossil fuels and the deep meme of progress. And 
you have these big systems, which are just reiterations at a systematic level of, of the same logic of the machine. So you have the, uh, the Google algorithm, which is 2 billion lines of code, which states unclearly in 2 billion lines what you could get just from looking at a machine. And so the, the systematic, the Gnostic layer is the fourth, in which case the, uh, the minimal unit of meaning is a value. So in systems, you have values which are intelligible in relation to other values. So soar with uh, uh, signify, uh, the, the symbols difference from one another, that sort of thing. Uh, piano arithmetic is the idea of generating the natural number series from or the whole number series from distinction of one successor of zero from another successor of successor and so forth. Um, so that's the systematic layer. That's the Gnostic layer, um, which is the fourth. And of course, that's not where we normally dwell. Where we dwell is the mythological layer in which the unit of meaning is not a value, uh, an object, uh, a geographic, geometrical shape, or a body. And the fifth layer, it's just the disclosed event. And that's a little bit like Heidegger's notion of Dasein. The controversial thing, I think, from my book is Heidegger is very clear in being in time that Dasein is not disclosed as clear by anything else. It's just itself. Dasein discloses itself. Um, kind of Husserl's notion that the consciousness constitutes itself. It's not some other being doing it. But I would argue in my work, actually, that the mythological horizon of the event unfolding actually is disclosed by something else. That doesn't, that's not the ultimate layer. So this is what prevents me from just being Heidegger is you get the mythological sort of clearing of an event of things happening um, in a kind of context in which you could break things up. So you have a, you have a mythological shape, like, uh, for example, in the Odyssey, you have Odysseus blinding the Cyclops. Okay. You could break that up into objects. You could break it up into Odysseus, the Cyclops. He uses a, a stake and a, uh, and a torch and their sheep. You could break it up. Just in the same way that you could break up a linguistic unit into its morphemes. You could take uncanny and say uncanny, but that's kind of a secondary abstraction. The mythological layer is originally populated by a, a unified event, okay, which unfolds. And that's the main um, stance most people have if they don't have a reason to explicitly deviate. But the point I make in my book is all five registers are founded really on the same substance. And in this case, our entire mythology, but also the horizon in which we're dwelling, the substance in it actually is just fossil fuels, but that's rapidly disappearing. And when it's replaced by something else in the future, I don't mean like algae or something like that. I mean like literally going back to agrarian and hunter-gatherer um, worlds, all of the other um, higher-order layers are going to be affected. You're going to have different systems. You're going to have different mythologies. You're going to have different objects. You're going to have different memes. Um, so Chad, I, what I'm thinking, listening to your brilliant system, I mean, it's, it's very fascinating. You have, you have quite a, quite an impressive system worked out, but what I was just thinking, listening to was you're kind of drilling down in through these levels of, of, of meaning in some sense, and kind of at the bottom of it all, you find oil. But what I'm curious about is why stop at oil? I mean, oil is composed of other things in some sense. I mean, you could you could kind of keep drilling down into what's what's kind of at the core of oil, could you not? Well, what is, what's at the core of oil is uh, you mean like uh, molecular, atomic, and subatomic levels? Sure, consider that as one. Yeah, you could go that route, right? Well, I think that that's actually, to be perfectly honest with you, um, something which is there, but that's just the material cause. 
And substance, if you take the ancient Greek view, is not just the material cause, although it's certainly not not the material cause. It's the material cause, but it's, it's material cause with something else. And if you have just the material cause, you don't have substance. Um, just like if you have just the form, you don't have the substance. That's why, like, in the Middle Ages, the paradox becomes, how can you intelligibly understand the form of something which doesn't actually actually exist? Like, you and I can understand a, a unicorn, even though it doesn't exist. There's no substance there, although we can maybe have the form, there's no material with it. And I think that the big thing for the somatic layer is the criteria of, of both. So it's not only maybe the material cause, and it's not only the formal cause, it's how both of them together kind of um, allow this bigger system of meanings to emerge. And if you take one or the other, you actually lose the soma. Okay, interesting. So you think that fossil fuels kind of satisfy all of the crucial conditions for that for that base layer, but other ways of digging deeper into that uh, entity don't necessarily satisfy those conditions. So there's some, there's something very essential about oil, fossil fuels. Oh, just from a, uh, a scientific perspective, um, if you look at carbon, okay, so carbon is a big part of fossil fuels. And some people actually in the people community just call it stored carbon. Okay. Um, carbon is also in a complex state. Um, and the difference in ancient Greek philosophy between like um, having the material cause and having the formal cause is kind of something like this. So if I have the material cause of iron, how do I know that I'm not talking about a dagger, a battle axe, or a kitchen knife? You know, you know that based on form. So how do I know that I'm not talking about a compost pit? There's an enormous difference. I do composting here in India. There's an enormous difference between a compost pit and petroleum. And I think that's why. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Now, so what, help me understand, like, what does, what, what do the rest of the 500 pages do? <laughs> like what, what is the structure of the book and, and, and it, what, what exactly are you trying to achieve or show in this, in this new book? Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking. It's um, going to re- actually be a two volume book. Um, I, I'm going to put about 500 pages out now. I, I really wrote probably more like a thousand, but I probably I scrapped about half of what I wrote. Um, so I'll be releasing about 500 pages. Um, I try to get this stuff out as, as reasonably priced as I can. So it'll be available on Kindle at the very least for like $3. Um, but it's, it's still only half of the original book I had planned. So the first half is more like the theoretical part. The second half, or the second volume released next year will be the, the practical part. That's where I deal with politics and economics and religion and, and things like that um, and ethics. So the first, the first volume is the theoretical uh, volume um, and it's it's divided in four parts itself. So part one is called oil, which I talk about the problem of peak oil and generally peak oil philosophy um, and uh, you know the peak oil literature situated to to philosophy and that's part one. Part two is meaning, where I devote one chapter to each of the uh, five layers: the soma, the meology, the sense object, etc. Uh, third part is uh, uh, called being. That's on the ontology of limitation, which I didn't even talk about in this. Um, in this video, but because uh, that's a big and rather obscure topic. Basically, for me, it's like the it's, what I'm doing is not German idealism. What I'm doing here is not Hegel. So, for me, in German idealism, you have this emphasis on negation, which is not applicable to the problem of people, which is more like an ontology of limitation. And I obviously look at people who've tried to think about limits, which are probably the most unpopular term. So, obviously, like in Dune, there's a there's a big concept of limitation of water on Arrakis. Um, 
Foucault talks a little bit about limits. Jordan Peterson talks about a little bit about limits. Um, but nobody's really done a satisfactory sort of ontological analysis of limitation the way that Hegel did of negation um, or that, um, you know, uh, any of the other ontologies were sort of redefined for Heidegger's Dasein for Deleuze, it's difference from Bodhi, it's set theory. For me, it's limitation. Yeah. And that's such a big topic. I won't be able to say more about it, except that it's kind of the opposite of Hegel. Um, but the fourth part is truth, in which, for me, truth is the kind of intersection of, of, of layers with each other. So Google right now seems obviously very true to us because of its intersection with the, the layers below it. So Google intersects with the countersense object of a machine, which intersects with the meme of, uh, of progress, which intersects with the soma fossil fuels, student loans, the system of usury, which is modern high finance, seems like a true system, but it's just a systematic redundancy of the countersense object of a, of a student loan. A student loan is a countersense object because it's a bottomless pit. No matter how much you dump into it, you never get out of it. Okay? So it's an object. And a countersense object at that. And that makes sense because it overlaps with the meme, which overlaps with the soma. And it didn't make sense to previous thinkers. Everybody from Aristotle to Dante and the Divine Comedy to Martin Luther all condemned usury as the most damnable sins. I think um, uh, St. John Chrysostom also said, nothing is worse than usury. He said, usury is the harbinger of hell. So it's remarkable that even devout Christians today see no ethical contradiction with working for Sally May or one of these other big banks and, and literally you're making their entire living off usury because for them, it makes sense memologically, somatically, and at the level of sense objects. So those are the four parts of the first volume of the book. Fascinating. So you, you basically think that fossil fuels help to explain ideologies in some sense, not just philosophical ideas, but the, the ideologies that define how people kind of process social and political questions? Well, I mean, ideology is uh, a difficult term to talk about um, without, I think, maybe getting into Marx. But I will say this, it's, it's, it is ideology. You're absolutely right about that. Um, but it's, it's not Marxist ideology in which, for Marx, ideology is kind of a false consciousness which is generated by um, by the mode of production, which I would argue Marx doesn't penetrate to the somatic. He's just stuck at the level of, of, of sense objectivity. So for Marx, you have this emphasis on machines. And his understanding of, um, of capitalism is that the invention of machines allowed the bourgeoisie to overtake the aristocracy. And communism is also really going to be the result of better machines being invented to change the relations again. Um, so for him, ideology is kind of like false consciousness, which is a side effect generated by modes of production. And I really don't think that's not the way that I would put it. I would say that with ideology, which for me is not its own distinct layer, there's mythological ideology, there's systematic ideology, there's counter sense object ideology, there's memological ideology. So we have to be maybe specific in my system of which, what kind of ideology we're talking about, because like the Google algorithm is systematic ideology. The myth of the American dream is mythological ideology. Um, solar panels are countersense object ideology. Um, but certainly it's not something which is false consciousness, which doesn't give you the, uh, the meme or excuse me, the, the soma. It really is just the soma or the substance given in a different transcendental register. That, that's why you don't need to go beyond 
what is in consciousness phenomenologically to try to restore this. It's not like a mystical object which I'm claiming exists, but I can't prove it to you. No, really, it's there within consciousness all the time. You just have to enact something like a transcendental reduction to show how your own consciousness is all it's already there within it. Okay. Okay. Now, what, what, hmm, how should I put this? What I'm, what I'm trying to understand it a little bit better is the relationship between the, the fossil fuel as this kind of base layer that, that you're describing and how it affects the way, the way people think, like you, you're kind of talking about, how should I put this? You're, you're, we're talking at a very kind of general level, right? A very abstract uh, general level. I'm curious about kind of the mechanisms, like how, how, how do you get from step A to, to step B in, in, in this model? I mean, uh, like, why is it that our thoughts, our phenomenology is able to contain in it these kinds of, you know, material substances uh, under, underneath the earth? Like, like, what what is that relationship like? What is that what is that mechanism like? Does that make yeah, sense? So, yeah. So first of all, empirical oil is not transcendental oil. Is one of the the weird claims that I make in the book. So when I'm talking about oil, I'm not talking about something that is physically within a barrel of petroleum, which you could conceivably pass your entire lifetime without ever physically seeing. Right. And even if you do, let's just say you work you work in the oil industry yourself. So every day you're handling these things. It's not that you're handling the soma directly, okay, or that you have any better understanding of it. Not even if you're a scientist who's studying it or an engineer who's studying it at a formal level, because transcendental oil is not itself the soma. It's, it's excuse me, um, empirical oil is not itself the soma. Empirical oil is itself, ironically enough, just one more countersense object, which is is itself founded upon it. So. In Husserlian phenomenology, the most bizarre thing is that, you know, the empirical ego is not the transcendental ego. The empirical ego is itself an object which is constituted by the transcendental ego. And that's a little bit where I'm going with this is like the the soma has. So the barrel of oil has to make, in a certain sense, constitute itself in that it's also constituted to you by the soma. So the thing that I'm, I guess, trying to make clear is like, it's not that um, the every extant barrel of oil put together in a set, that's literally it. It's rather more like the relation limitation, ontologically speaking, to the other layers, which is a very obscure topic. I don't know that I have time to explain in depth. But one thing that interests me is this. Um, so for, for Hegel, you have this notion of determinate, limita- uh, d- determinate negation, excuse me, um, in which for Hegel, you have this failure um, I don't know if you're familiar with like uh, volume three of, uh, of the uh, encyclopedia by Hegel. I don't recall. <laughs> okay. So it's a pretty obscure work, but you have this notion that you move from, um, from art to religion to philosophy, right? And it's, you have this progression of trying to do art and you're trying to do art. You're failing. You have this vision of what art should be, whatever in kind of non-formal terms. And uh, one day you finally get it right, but then it's no longer art because when art finally becomes itself, it transforms into religion. So religion goes through the same thing and religion tries to get itself right. And it's not that it never does. It's just that when it does, it becomes philosophy. Okay. And this is the real key, I think, to understanding Hegel is how it's not that you never embody the notion or get it right. It's rather that when you do, it's no longer what it is. It's like Plato's notion in the Cradleist that 
a perfect picture is no longer a picture. Let me put it this way. A perfect representation is not a perfect representation. At that point, you just have an object. And the paradox about how um, embodying the content of what it's supposed to be actually just leaves the um, subject matter altogether, I think, can be understood through this, through this hierarchy in which the mythological uh, criteria for meaning is something that actually is imperfectly embodied by myth. We have the ambiguity of interpretation and hermeneutical events, and we have the ambiguity of abstractions like and myths are about good and evil and things like that. There's this, there's this understandable frustration and inconclusiveness. But when we finally get past the ambiguity, we no longer have myth, then we just have value. Values are not ambiguous. Uh, number three is not number four. Okay? The uh, negation operator is not the, the, the conjunction operator. Okay. So, but there we have another problem in which now it's um, inconclusive as a whole system. We need billions of lines of code to state if we could have one perfect symbol communicate the whole thing in one symbol, well, you could have that. You're just no longer a system now. Now it's an object. And that runs into the same problem of, well, you know, a machine is kind of an imperfect example of this concept of linear progress. You have to indirectly read it from a physical machine. So what if there was an object which captured that perfectly? Well, that's actually just the deep meaning. And then there the problem is, well, it's, it's like oil, but it's not oil. And the final determinant limitation in the hierarchy is SOMA for that reason. So that's kind of the convoluted, but that is the reason why I situate the hierarchy in that way. Okay. That's great. This, this is fascinating. Do you, now, do you mind? I feel like I, I have a pretty good uh, understanding. I, I won't say understanding, but at least impression of, of your kind of philosophical perspective on oil and transcendental mimology. So that was one of my objectives that I wanted to accomplish in this talk is just to get a kind of high level overview of, 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 of your main ideas. And so I, I feel like we've, we've kind of checked that box and uh, it sounds really kind of fascinating and uh, kind of impressively systematic and, and creative. So uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for all that for sure. Are you game for a few random questions from people watching? Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, once again, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this uh, talk and uh, I appreciate having had the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I like to, I basically, one of the things I do on this channel is I basically just go around looking for people who are, really, there's a few criteria that I tend to look for. Just um, obviously smart and doing something interesting and meaningful that looks uh, at least possibly good uh, in some way. But really the criteria I look for really are uh, people that are really just super independently minded, kind of unique or eccentric in some in some kind of uh, weird way, and that are actually you know doing something, working hard on something over time, and have that kind of serious motivation and investment and discipline to actually not just be weird and interesting and unique and creative, but to to follow through on it and, and actually uh, constitute some kind of interesting independent presence and, and project. And so I'm kind of like always just scouring the internet for interesting people like that. And, and you were recommended a few people who watch my stuff said that, uh, I think like two of them said that I should talk to you. So I looked you up and then I'm seeing in the chat that, um, a few other people who watch my stuff know of you. So, um, yeah, so it would make sense that, you know, you and I have a, a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something, um, a lot more interesting going on online than anything you'll find in academia because like you go to the elite departments right now and what are people talking about they're like you know doing the the, the thousandth critique of marxism 
and this with a thousandth critique of Freud and this. And it's just, they're not even doing anything interesting, quite frankly, at the top departments. And really, it's not like this is what we have on YouTube. It's not like this is just like, you know, um, a poor man's academia or whatever. It's not like this is where the interesting thing actually is happening right now. I think that's going to be more and more the case. Yeah, I think it's already happening. I mean, it's happening with people like you. It's it happened. It happened to me, like in my own life, without me even planning it. I mean, I was never really, I never really was on YouTube that much. I basically just over the past two years or so, it was very sudden that like making videos and doing stuff freely on the internet got really productive and 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 in you know uh, energizing and enlightening and uh, in every way it was just kind of like taking off and it was it was like everything I ever dreamed of what a radical intellectual life should look and feel like uh, that was kind of like kicking off through my blog and through doing like YouTube and stuff like that at the same time that I was actually succeeding quite well in academia. And it was like it, 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 every year it got worse and worse, like a weird perverse <laughs> irony of academia is that like, even when you get a good job, every level of advancement, you actually get more bullshit work to do. You don't get less like it, you don't escape it as you advance through the system. You actually get more of it as you advance through the system. Maybe there's some time in 20 years from now in which it would have, you know, decreased, but fuck that. I wasn't going to wait for it. So yeah, I think what you're describing is it's, it's intensifying. And I think every year you're going to see, you're definitely already seeing it. And I, I think it's just going to keep increasing that. Like if you're a really smart teenager and you really want to work on ideas and you want to create, you know, knowledge or advance intellectual or philosophical or any type of, uh, you know, academic types of debates and research, you're just going to start, you're just going to choose to start doing it totally by yourself online because that's increasingly uh, remunerative and increasingly influential and it's increasingly normal. I think that's the big thing is like for, for a long time being a, like making videos on YouTube was just kind of like a weird thing, right? It's like only, only unique kind of nerdy uh, people did that. And now it's becoming such a part of everyday life. It's in everyone's living rooms that it's kind of like, it's not weird anymore. It's just a medium uh, and it's increasing in almost every way. As I said before, it's just the obviously superior uh, way of doing things. If what you want is, is, is intellectual freedom and kind of uh, release from the constraints and, and obligations of a kind of stultified professionalism. Now, some people want that and, and there are certain types of personalities who maybe excel in that type of context and they can have their academia. But for people like you and I, it's just increasingly going to be obvious uh, that there's no need to bother with academia. Well, I mean, you mentioned that um, YouTube uh, has gained maybe legitimacy as a as a venue for uh, for discourse in, in recent years, and I would say one of the reasons is that's that's where the people are. Okay, so right. if you're if you're printing a book of like three hundred copies at a printing press, uh, a university printing press, which is almost exclusively going to sell for two hundred dollars a copy, and sit on a handful of university library shelves collecting dust with maybe one person in. 10 years checking it out just so they can write their dissertation with one page that they found in the index they flipped to and pretended to read. And by the way, like 70% of academic bibliographies are fraudulent because they have the same typos as the, the one that they stole it from by copying and pasting it. So um, I would argue that, um, you know, like YouTube is where the people are and there's arguably nobody at the other side. It's not that there's hundreds or dozens or thousands or millions of people who are reading all of these academic monographs in many cases it's nobody right right 
Uh, someone wants to know if you're game for a few random questions. Uh, someone wants to know, do you have any views on Indian religion? On Hinduism, you mean? You can answer it however you want. They just asked, do you have any views on Indian religion? Okay, I assume they're talking about Hinduism. India is uh, the sure. most. Yeah, India is the most religiously diverse place that I've ever been. Um, we we don't have a fraction of the religious diversity in the United States. Um, obviously, we have a mosque here and there. We might even have one Hindu temple in the state of Colorado. Um, we have Buddhist centers here and there. But India is so, so. People who've been to China and and India both say that India is the opposite of China because you have religion not only at a diverse level in which I think it's to me it feels about roughly equal um, Hindu Christian um, and uh, what's the other one Hindu Christian Muslim and if you're in northern India there's a lot of Sikhs and um, in Sri Lanka you have a lot of Buddhists and um, that's really awesome you know and uh, I think that uh, religion is also just out in the open in India in which every shop you go to there's going to be uh, either a, a, a Hindu icon I don't know if you can see Lord Shiva behind me, but uh, I have a icon myself of uh, Lord Shiva, if you can see him or not, um, because the landowner, or the person who owns this house, actually, and there's Nietzsche also, if you're curious who that is, um, he's, a, he's a Hindu, so there's a prayer room right in front of me uh, with icon of, uh, of Ganesha, the, the uh, elephant god. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's something which I think in America you feel like only super religious people will do that. But here, it's something that you'll find in every restaurant, in every, um, in every taxi cab you get into. There's going to be like a Hindu icon or maybe some Arabic inscription with a picture of, um, of Mecca if they're Muslim or um, a picture of Jesus if they're Christian. Um, and, you know, I think that that's I think it's good. I think that religious diversity is, is a good thing. And I think that a lot of good philosophy is not pursued in the West because it's religious. So I have a series of videos on my channel on Hindu philosophy, which I talk about the, the Ramayana, the Hanuman Chalisa, Lord Shiva, a lot of that. And I think that uh, a lot of really legitimately good philosophy over thousands of years has been intrinsically religious. And a lot of people in the West are letting that stuff go to neglect simply because they feel pressured by academia to maintain this radically secularist and anti-religious um, um, stance towards 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 religion, and it's their loss because they're missing out on a lot of good stuff. Hmm. Interesting. Well put. Now, uh, I, have, I have a question. Actually, what do you, what? Um, oh shoot! It just actually uh, fled my mind. How old are you, Chad? Uh, thirty years old. I'm. Cool. Okay, I'm calling you Chad, by the way. Even though I know that's not your name, that's that's your name for me. So who I am at this point. The only the only person I'm not Chad to is um, the Indian Embassy, where I have my passport. Other <laughs> than that, I'm, I am Chad. Do people know your real name, or is that a secret? I I mean, some people know my. I mean, you know, like I, I people, some people from the original channel, like 2012, might might remember my real name, but I, I certainly don't go by it anymore. Oh, that's something I wanted to ask you. So, was your first channel like really quite big, or what? Uh, if you're asking like how big it got eventually before I took it down, yeah, I don't know, maybe half a million views. Um, I'm actually making more ground faster with this channel than I did with the last one. Half a million subs or half a million views? I have a million views. So, okay. you know, for an obscure topic like philosophy, that's not bad. But cool. um, certainly, I mean, I was, I was never anything, you know, bigger than like uh, uh, an obscure guy talking about philosophy. But that's all right, because I feel like if you get to the ranks of somebody like a PewDiePie, you know, you have 
you have a lot of people watching that are precisely the people you don't want watching. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. No, who cares? I was just curious because um, I, I'm kind of surprised how many people who watch my shit know you. Uh, so I was just curious. Oh man, was he like really big or just kind of bigger? But no, that's a, that's a very respectable amount for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm always, I always find it interesting. I tell this to people that when you're making stuff on the internet, if you, if you, if you really believe what you're saying and you believe what you're doing and it, it's what you really want to be saying and doing, you actually only need a very small number of people for it to feel very worthwhile. You know, people, people don't get that sometimes when they look at it from the outside. Well, let's talk about philosophy and numbers for a second, because um, philosophy might seem today like something that is very obscure. Only a handful of, of people are doing it. But we have more philosophers today. And by that, I mean more professional philosophers. I'm not talking about like, you know, a guy with a copy of Plato on his, on his shelf in his house. I'm talking about professional philosophers. We have more of them today than the, the, the rest of history combined is mm. one stat that my philosophy professor gave me in undergrad. And it's actually true. Like, if you, you want to talk about the days of Spinoza and Descartes, I mean, those were days where, like, philosophy was a pretty small community, but it was okay because it was quality over quantity. Like, they were people who were really interested, and some of the best philosophy in history was done precisely in that era. Yes, yes. Now, when you say that there are more philosophers now than ever, are you talking about academics, or are you talking about just people who are more or less making their living doing philosophy in one way or another? I would assume that this is my professor's stat. He was talking about prof- he was talking about professors because he, he counted himself as one of them. He said he's a professional philosopher. And the reason, the context he brought this up was um, in Philosophy 100, it was a general class, and he said to a, a lecture hall about 70 students, he said, can anybody here name one 21st century philosopher? And one person raised their hand and said Sigmund Freud. And it's like, no, that's the 19th century. That's only off by two centuries. And he said, it's ironic that nobody can name it a single 21st century philosopher because there's more today than the rest of history combined. Hmm. It's just the irony is that most of them are not producing anything of, of lasting value, right? Hmm. There are a few people in the chat who really want to hear you talk about, by the way, do you have to go like right now or I don't want to uh, No, uh, Not right now. No, I got to, I got to, um, uh, going a, a little, a little bit, but uh, not now. I'm, uh, I'm definitely uh, happy you hear some questions. Yeah, and uh, and thank you uh, everybody for uh, for participating. Yeah, cool. No, I just wanted to check in and not. Uh, I didn't want to keep you too long. Well, I'll let you go. In maybe ten minutes if that's cool for you. Oh no, no, it's not. It's not even that soon. Uh, probably more like an hour. I got to go, but uh, certainly, uh, yeah. How, how many questions we need to take? Oh uh, gosh, well, it's getting late for me, so I don't know if I can keep up for too much longer. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, good. Yeah, uh, I, I understand. It's very late there now. Thank you. Thank you for staying up, by the way. And uh, whenever you need to go, just uh, let me know. Perfect. I'm not in a rush or uh, either way. So, um, well, okay. So one, a few people really want to hear you talk about the, uh, Kaczynski's critique of the left. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, Ted Kaczynski, um, critiques both the left and the right in, um, uh, uh the manifesto and then in anti-tech revolution, he only critiques leftists. He uh, doesn't reserve a specifically political critique of, of, of the conservatives. And that's not because he agrees with either one of them. It's rather that the critique of conservatives can be done much quicker. He says they lament losing family values and traditional religion, and yet they will not sacrifice economic growth. And your typical neocon, like um, capitalist conservative on Fox News, they will not sacrifice economic growth driven by technology. And the two are really the same thing now. They, they will not give up fossil fuels is what it really means. Um, and they wonder 
why the the cultural change has, has gone along with it. They try to diagnose it with with other factors when that's precisely what caused it. But that's a simple critique. The critique of leftists is far more demanding of his time, and he opens and closes the manifesto with lengthy critiques of leftists. And the argument for Ted Kaczynski is basically that in modernity, you're already deprived of freedom because your survival needs are not met even by farming on your own land. Um, it's just met by being able to go to a grocery store and swipe a piece of plastic and leave with industrial generated products. And if you do not participate in the system, you will starve to death um, or, or die in some other way simply from being deprived of the products of industrialism. So he says, how do you actually get those though? Because most of us don't actually exert ourselves physically or even mentally at our jobs. You are working at a top corporation and still just sitting on your ass all day in meetings and your only criteria to succeed or not is obedience and submission to the, to the system as a technological system. So this powerlessness that people feel inevitably um, deprives them of being able to go through the power process, which is a basic need that humans have to have a goal, expend effort, and then accomplish the goal, ideally with freedom. So we turn to outlets like collecting stamps or cheering for football teams, but leftists turn to, to politics. And leftists are particularly susceptible to the problems that this poses, because despite the facade of claiming to be radical revolutionaries against the system, actually leftists are what he calls the most over-socialized of all people, because um, over-socialization is just doing exactly what society tells you. And the leftist Ivy League professor with a PhD from Berkeley and a six-figure salary is the most over-socialized because he's doing exactly what the society told him to do by joining the upper middle class. And his prescription for, for the oppressed minority, um, uh, blah, 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 that he's writing all of his papers about, is actually just for them to join him. This is um, uh, Ted Kaczynski's critique. He says, well, you claim that you're in favor of people uh, holding on to their traditions or whatever. But what you mean by that is like somebody's an immigrant from India. They can still eat Indian food and listen to uh, Hindi music. But you still want them to become an engineer, doctor, lawyer, politician, etc., and so leftists are intrinsically um, the most over-socialized, but also the most deprived of freedom precisely because they're so tapped into the system. So it's a, it's a time bomb waiting to explode in which if you were somehow to allow them control of technology because of their own frustrated desire for power, um, they would not be able to let it go. It's like the quote in Lord of the Rings, which I mentioned in my video on Ted Kaczynski and leftist psychology, in which Gandalf says to uh, Boromir, who wants to just use the ring, because his response is, well, you know, guys, we have the ring. Can't we just use it? Like, isn't it powerful and we can just defeat the other guys? He said, no, you don't understand. Even if you're wise and powerful, the ring can't be used, because then it's even more dangerous. Because if you're already powerful, it's going to corrupt you even more. It's like that with, with technology. If you're already uh, very powerful within society, it's even more dangerous. And nobody, he argues, um, from the left can be... Uh, taken seriously as anti-technological because if they actually obtain like a political revolution to control the society, they won't be able to do that, by the way, without modern technology and fossil fuels. Hmm. And what interests you about Jordan Peterson? I think Jordan Peterson is demonstrating the divide between the, um, the masses and the entrenched aristocracy, which is reaching a level as drastic as you saw in the 18th century in France or the 19th century in Russia, 
in which in, in say Russia, you had a, 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 an entrenched aristocracy that spoke French and um, looked to Western Europe for inspiration and was out of touch with the masses of serfs and, uh, and, and, and peasants. And that created the conditions for a revolution. And you have the same thing now. You have a, an entrenched academic aristocracy in the West who's looking towards, ironically enough, once again, Europe, although largely at this point it's Scandinavia that they're placing as like, um, if you listen to like the Young Turks, they'll say, well, obviously universal happiness is possible. We could just become like Norway and have like, you know, their level of socialism and everybody, if they did that, would be happy. Um, but I mean, we have a, a disconnect between the aristocracy, which is looking towards Scandinavia and, um, and, um, and um, repudiating the ignorance of the masses um, and making their whole career by doing that, by the way, because these days, if you want to um, beat 900 people from one academic appointment, you're not going to be doing it by having a very good understanding of Husserl or Heidegger or Hegel or some legitimately difficult thinker. You're just going to shout the loudest about social justice, and you'll basically just guilt trip the administrators into letting you on the department. Um, oftentimes, by uh, shouting about issues which, like the third world, for example, like most of the post-colonial um, professors claiming that they deserve a position on the faculty just because they're they're talking about the third world are not from the third world. They're actually wealthy, upper middle class background quite frankly, white people from America who suddenly took an interest in the third world because it was going to advance their career. So there's this hypocrisy um, that is difficult to ignore for anybody outside the aristocracy, um, which is generating this divide in which the millions of people who are listening to Jordan Peterson and like, this book has thousands of reviews on Amazon. This book I was able to obtain in India for pretty cheap, um, but in America, it's like 80 bucks for Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson, and people are buying it because there's a demand. Whereas, you know, one of my professors was uh, invited to do an Ivy League talk uh, like last year, and there was like 45 views on the video, like half a year later. So it's just remarkable how the official academics, even at top universities, are talking basically to nobody because nobody actually wants what they have to offer. And... I think people who dismiss the Peterson phenomenon as the ignorant masses who don't know good, good stuff when they see it are only confirming exactly what has created this phenomenon. Interesting proposition. Uh, do you, all right, here's a, here's a curveball. Uh, how much mysticism is there in Hegel's philosophy? Um, how much mysticism is there in Hegel's philosophy? That's a good question. Um, it's difficult to talk about Hegel's view of religion. I think, maybe without realizing that for him, most religion is picture thinking. So in Phenomenology of Spirit, the last big section of, uh, of the book is religion. So you start with consciousness, you get to self-consciousness, you get to reason, you get to spirit, which is like kind of like culture, and then you get to religion. And each one is doing what the previous one was trying to do. So with religion, you finally get something like uh, the, the type of uh, uh, community, and uh, I guess maybe like civilization, you're striving towards spirit. So you get that, but you're still achieving it with the limitation that you're trying to contemplate the absolute. So the reason you progress beyond the previous stages is now you're explicitly dealing with the absolute. But the absolute in religion is still thought of as picture terms. You're thinking of, if you're not familiar with like picture thinking and notional thinking for Hegel, the picture is something which is a static form, which seduces you into thinking that it's fixed. Whereas it's really something which is going to be negated away by 
um, by the notional um, imminent negation of the notion by itself. So you, you finally get beyond religion when you understand the absolute is not any single image that presents it as a transcendent like entity. You understand in the final section that you move up to the absolute by thinking it notionally. So I would say that Hegel definitely posits religion as being like at, at the top, nearly at the top of this hierarchy. But he doesn't quite consider it. He still considers it to be picture thinking. So that's about as much as I have to. And, and the same thing with the, uh, the third volume of the encyclopedia. You move from religion to philosophy. Because when religion becomes what it's really supposed to be dealing with the absolute, then you just get philosophy. Excellent answer. Now, what do you think of the permaculture movement? Its strengths or weaknesses? Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of permaculture, to be perfectly honest with you, as somebody who was actually involved for about one year with trying to start an eco village. So oh, yeah. I could, yeah, I, I actually got into peak oil with permaculture at the same time. Some of the philosophy majors at my undergrad um, got into peak oil at the same time that they got into permaculture. And they started the uh, plans for uh, an eco village in the forests of Oregon where we were supposed to just sort of uh, start a, uh, a self-sustaining community of, of thinkers um, while the rest of society collapsed. And obviously it never happened, um, <laughs> largely because of ideological differences. So the, oh, yeah. the worst thing about permaculture is there's some people in the permaculture movement who use it as an inkblot for um, dogmatic liberal ideology. There's some who do it for a dogmatic conservative ideology. I've been to farms where it was one or the other. I've been to some farms where it's evangelical Christian conservative couple that wants that to be the ideological base of permaculture. I've been to ones where it's uh, secular leftist hippies um, and atheists who want it to be that. And I think that's going to be the downfall of permaculture because that's a misunderstanding between the levels. Permaculture should be descending down to the soma for how you get, um, how you survive off of resources, but they don't descend all the way to the somatic level. They remain at the, the mythological layer of compelling images or explanate or, or visions of how the future will be better. They say at the, the systematic level of political correctness, for example, in which you're explicitly sorting out right language from wrong language. That's just the systematic layer treating language as units of value. Um, and I think that permaculture in the West is something which could be used properly, but too many people are, are using it wrongly. What really interests me is not the invention of some new exotic you know, thing that's going to save us. It's rather just traditional Indian agriculture because I live in a rural village in India where there's still, I think I would say probably most people around here still do traditional farming because just 10 years ago, this road on my house was a dirt road that was treaded by, um, it was trod, I don't know if that's the right past tense, by um, bull carts. And there's certainly parts of India where I still see people riding carts pulled by bulls um, because cars are a pretty recent thing. And they're actually pretty inefficient. A lot of Indian roads are so narrow that cars don't really work. So anyway, this is a place where we don't have to artificially reconstruct or invent some new thing like permaculture and try to ideologically sort who is welcome to join us and who's not. Um, it's rather, it's already here. And what I'm personally learning from having farmers, you know, kind of show me some of what they know is better than anything I'd learned when I actually went to permaculture settlements um, in, in the West. I'm learning the proper way, according to the Indian climate, to do things like uh, composting. I'm learning the proper way to grow uh, uh, tapioca and, and keeping chickens and, and things like that. So I would argue one of the best views, um, and I'll finish this comment with this, is one of the best views of Peterson is that we don't actually understand 
why things function the way they do. We only understand that they do. And gambling that throwing away a system because you ideologically don't like it on the gamble that you can replace everything that had millions of years in some cases of evolution, since like a lot of social relation is, you know, something that we've inherited from millions or maybe even a billion years. And it's a very reckless path to take to think that you can replicate all of that with just overnight imposing some ideology. All right. Now, what do you think about Andrew Yang? Uh-huh. A couple of people have brought him up. It's remarkable how little I follow American politics living in India, to be honest with you. Sure. Um, I, I think that everything he says, I agree with. And people bring him up, especially to me in the context of student loans. And I agree with everything. He, let me put it this way. As a Gnostic system of information, I agree with everything he has to say. But does he factor in moving beyond fossil fuels to accomplish any of this? I highly doubt it, right? Well, if uh, one of the interviewers for the debates are watching this, they might get from you uh, the idea to ask him what what Andrew Yan thinks about the uh, soma. Maybe we'll hear maybe we'll hear that on the uh, on the TV debates. Yeah, it would be interesting to see how uh, he would respond to that um, because the soma, if he has a background in Hinduism, he might misinterpret that as a word for the goddess of the moon. So we'll see how he interprets that. Yeah, well, it's interesting. His his whole this whole movement behind Andrew Yang that it would it's that's definitely ripe for a kind of memeological analysis. Uh, like, is that is the is the Yang Gang operating on the the mythological level or the Gnostic level or the I, I wonder. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think that um, in a certain sense, we're always operating on all five layers. It's just which one, like phenomenologically, is brought to consciousness at that moment. So, you know, every political campaign has obviously its mythological layer where you have images of how the future is going to be a lot better than it is right now mm. that sort of seduce you into, um, you know, fantasies of, um, you know, like Obama ran on, you know, no longer are people going to be turned away for uh, pre-existing conditions. And, well, you know, everybody's going to, people would die from cancer. Would We have this mythological image of people surviving. And then you have the Gnostic system of how you're going to get there. You have the sense object on which it's founded. And all of that. So it's interesting. I really, I admit, I need to research uh, this uh, this uh, movement a lot more explicitly than I have. Cool. Do you have any uh, experiences or observations or lessons about your your experience so far publishing on Amazon and kind of that process and how you've done that? Any any just kind of uh, words words of wisdom on 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 doing that for people who want to do that? I would first of all totally recommend it. And I will say this: you're not going to make less money necessarily and royalties by doing it this way because uh, John Michael Greer has mentioned that if you buy a book, one of his books on Amazon for like 13 bucks, only $1 is going to go to him as royalties. So um, certainly uh, with uh, the publisher taking their share of the, 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 whole, the whole cut of the money, I don't know exactly how much they take, but I will say this, you're not going to make any less money. And if you're largely going to market your book to the people who listen to your YouTube channel anyway, rather than like I don't, I could never see this book ending up like on a shelf at Barnes and Noble, you know, just like going to a general population. It's it's a lot more restricted. So, I mean, I don't really see the point in like trying to go to a publisher at this point if if you're doing the kind of thing that I am. But with this last book, that was your first book, right? Is that right? Yeah, and, yeah it was. Uh, well, yeah. now just in the process of putting that out, was there anything you kind of wish you did differently, or would have done better if you knew the process? Just any, any types of uh, lessons or observations like that? 
Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff with, I, I don't know, maybe like formatting that, uh, you know, I, I still have never actually physically held a copy of my book because they don't ship to India. But, you know, some of, uh, you know, some of my friends who had a copy of the book, they, they kind of showed me what it looks like on the inside. And, uh, you know, there's some lessons to be learned, which, uh, you know, I've, I've taken to heart. Um, but uh, I, I really think that uh, they do a pretty good job, actually. Like, um, if I'll just show you like a, a picture of the book, which uh, my friend Flowers Are Lovesome showed me. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a book which, if you can see that, uh, there's a copy of my book next to Ted Kaczynski's. Like, it it looks all right. Like, it looks like pretty much like a normal book that was published. They do a pretty good job, I think, with like the yeah. the presentation. And um, right, okay. So I was just yeah, I was kind of curious if you had any 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 words of wisdom on that front because I think there are a lot of people more and more. You're going to see this more and more. A lot of people come to me. Like, I got a lot of questions kind of around this sort of stuff, like how to do this, uh, should I do this, that kind of thing. So I was just curious if you had any any, any thoughts on that, but that's good, that's good. Um, yeah, I would, yeah, I mean, honestly, I would say that the hardest part about doing it is just doing it. So, I mean, if you if you put in the hours to write a 500-page book, you've already done the hard part. So formatting, publishing, that's the easy part in comparison with just writing the book. So if anyone's interested, I would just recommend to them, just write the book, and then after you have the manuscript, then you can focus on all of the other stuff. Yeah. Excellent. So, um, do you want to say anything about your, uh, kind of how do you, your, your writing process? How do, how do, how do you work when you, you know, do you have a certain, certain kind of, uh, schedule or, or routine that, uh, you use regularly to, to kind of put your works together or you just kind of wing it? Uh, well, I mean, I try to keep a routine. They say that Immanuel Kant had a very strict routine with writing. I think he woke up in the morning and he'd write for two hours every day or something like that. Jordan Peterson wrote this book with a routine of uh, three hours a day for 15 years. So there's people like that. Um, I'm not completely flexible with my schedule. I am a pretty busy guy here in India. Um, but uh, I write when I can. But I feel like uh, my own experience is if you write first thing in the morning with a lot of coffee, your mind's going to be, you know, sped up and you might write a little bit like Gary Daw just on accident because I, you know, you kind of write longer sentences, more complicated sentences. So I think that there's a, a balance between maybe um, approaching it when you maybe don't feel like you have maximum energy to more, maybe approach it more with a sober mindset. So mm. that's, that was actually the most surprising thing I found about, about the writing process is how like being toned down in energy is actually like a, a good thing. That's interesting, especially from a transcendent, transcendental memological perspective, uh, because I'm just thinking about like the soma, the soma at work there, right? It's kind of interesting. And like Nietzsche, I think said that one should not think at night. He doesn't say that exactly, but you know, he gestures in that in that direction. Um, but maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe there there's a case to be made for thinking while you're tired. That's interesting. All right, Chad. Well, I feel like it's top, it, it's it's eleven o'clock here now, so top of the hour. It's kind of a natural break point. Was there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you're uh, that that you think I should know, or you'd like to share with people? Uh, any any? Do you want to give it more info on on the next book and where people can get it, or feel free to plug anything if you want? Okay. Yeah. And uh, once again, thank you so much for the uh, discussion, and I uh, appreciate it. And uh, thanks for staying up so late um, and working around the Indian time zone. I will say this: the book will be available in a couple of days. Um, hopefully on uh, Friday of this week, Indian time. And um, it'll be available on amazon.com, Kindle edition, maybe $3. I'll get the paperback as cheap as I can, but they cost a certain amount of money to print it. So I'll, I'll shoot for maybe $12. Um, 
but I, I can't guarantee at the moment it'll be that low, but I, I'll try to get this out to the, uh, the people for as low as I can. And I will say this, um, $12 for a 500 page book. If you compare like to an academic publication, that's like 180 bucks. Or, well, actually literally probably will be 180 bucks for 180 pages or 150 pages. Um, the worst thing about academic publications is a lot of them are actually small. They're charging you exorbitant rates for a, a, a couple chapters of, of information, like 150 pages. So I try to, uh, do justice to, um, you know, keep the, the viewer um, in mind and try to get a reasonably priced product out there. So um, it'll be available on Amazon. Um, I'll have an announcement on my channel. And um, yeah, just uh, try to, I'll, I'll try to do some some videos to maybe talk a little bit more about it. And uh, just want to say thanks to anybody who was interested in the first book or in the next one. Yeah, well, thanks again, Chad, for coming to hang out with me. It was really, it was interesting to, to meet you and, and to talk with you you're definitely super interesting dude and you're a cool dude. And uh, I'm impressed by your extremely independent mind and yeah, you're just kind of DIY attitude of uh, you know, just not asking permission, not really bothering to go the normal routes and to just, yeah, think what you want and do your own project on your own. And it, it seems like a, a formidable project. I, I, I was kind of, I'd use this show to, to kind of, to sniff people out basically to kind of see like what's going on under the hood, not in a judgmental way, but there's so much interesting stuff out there that I never know what I should spend my time reading, you know, cause it's, if you read everything that seemed interesting, you'd be spending all your time reading and you'd be wasting some of it because some stuff seems interesting, but then it's not. And so I kind of use this as a, as a fun interactive way to just see what someone's like. And then, I, and then it's usually kind of after this, I kind of decide, you know, I make my personal judgments, not like about their, you know, objective quality necessarily, but just whether I'm interested in, in kind of learning more. And, um, you know, yeah, I'm definitely, I, I think I'm going to buy your first book at least, cause I'm quite curious to see how you build out this model. Um, I can't say more about it. I can't really engage it more cause I'm only learning about it for the first time right now, but I'll definitely say that, uh, you've convinced me that it's intriguing and interesting enough that I, I want to see what you do there. And I want to see how, how you make that case. So, um, so yeah, yeah, my hat's off to you. And, uh, so well done. And I hope we stay in touch. Yeah. And, uh, thank you once again. It was a, it was a great talk and I appreciate uh, your time and, uh, it was a, it was a great thing to do. So thank you. Cool, man. All right, dude. Well, thanks again. And, uh, I'll see you around the interwebs. All right. Sounds good. Take care. All right, see you, Chad. Bye. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.